Welcome back to the book of Numbers. So if you have your Bibles with you today, and we hope that you do, uh, join me in Numbers chapter 16. The book of Numbers, Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers chapter 16. If you were here last week, we saw the devastating effects on the people of God when we live by fear and not faith. And some of you are thinking, well, I ain't scared of nothing. I'm not fearful. Well, spiritually, we can define fear this way, living by what you only see and not trusting in what God only sees. So are you living by faith or are you living by fear? And we see this in, in numbers because, yes, it's called numbers in English, but it's really by midbar, which is in the wilderness. And this eternal truth is found in scriptures. For us, really, the greater the maze, the greater the haze. The, the more difficult our life becomes, often the more difficult it is to see God working out in our lives. And it's been true for thousands of years ago. That's true for the people of God in the book of Numbers, and it's true for the people of God today, and it's for the people who don't believe in God. So today we're going to look at the people of the Lord again in a sticky situation. So while you find number 16 in your, in your scriptures, um, I want us to go back to 1700s real quick. In 1776-ish, um, 13 colonies in North America decided to rebel and revolt against British America. And they penned a document that you might have heard of. It's called the Declaration of Independence. And we now know this historical event is called the American Revolution. Roughly 20 years later, in France... A similar episode takes place. The, the third level of society decides to revolt and rebel against the feudal system. And in the Les Résistants, they, they throw the feudal system on its head. And those that are living in oppression decide to rebel against those who are exercising authority in their lives. Another rebellion took place closer to home in 1955 after a long, hard days of work. A lady decided not to give up her seat on a bus in Montgomery. You might have heard of her, Rosa Parks. And she decided to rebel and resist against what she perceived as injustice. Why do I give you those three historical scenarios? I think they teach us several things about our core. It's almost as if we as people don't know how to live our life with control and authority. It's almost as if you and I are living with an image of a distant land in our life that we just long to go back to somewhere. It seems like each of us are either doing one of three things. You're either trying to get authority in your life, you're trying to exercise authority in your life, or you are rebelling against the injustice of those who are ungodly and in godly ways exercising authority in, in unjust ways. So what does that tell us about our lives in general? Scripture says very simply, by birth, you and I are constantly living in rebellion. By birth in Adam, we are sinners. And we have rebelled against God's kingdom, the image that he has put within us. Do you ever feel like you're just living in a land that doesn't seem right? There's a reason for that. God has put something in you that says, look at me, look at, look at a better way. And so simply our message this morning is entitled this, finding peace 
in a rebellious community. Anyone want peace today? Serenity? Patience? Yes. How do we find that? Well, let's look at the word of God for the answers. Numbers chapter 16. Beginning in verse 1. Now, Korah, son of Ishar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, with Datan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, and On, son of Pelet, sons of Reuben, took 250 prominent Israel men who were leaders of the community and representatives in the assembly, and they rebelled against Moses. You see, rebellion is not a modern phenomenon, is it? It's been going on since the fall. They came together in verse 3 against Moses and Aaron and told them, you have gone too far. Everyone in the community is holy. And the Lord, the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourself over the Lord's assembly? When Moses heard this, he fell face down. Then he said to Korah and all of his followers, Tomorrow morning the Lord will reveal who belongs to him, who is set apart, and the one he will let come near him. He will let the one that he chooses come near him. Korah, you and your followers are to do this. Take fire pans and tomorrow place fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord. Then the man the Lord chooses will be the one who is set apart. It is you Levites who have gone too far. Moses also said to Korah, now listen Levites, is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the Israelite community to bring you near to himself, to perform the work of the Lord's tabernacle and to stand before the community to minister to them. He has brought you near and all of your fellow Levites who are with you, but you are pursuing the priesthood as well. Therefore, it is you and all of your followers who have conspired against the Lord. As Aaron, who is he? that you should complain about him. Verse 18, each man took his fire pan, placed the fire in it, put incense on it, and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting along with Moses and Aaron. After Korah assembled the whole community against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting, the glory of the Lord appeared to the whole community. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, separate yourselves from the the community so that I may consume them instantly. But Moses and Aaron fell face down and said, God, God who gives breath to all, when one man sins, will you vent your wrath to the whole community? Verse 31. You want to wake up this morning? Listen to this. Just as he was finished speaking all these words, the ground beneath them split open. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households, all Korah's people and all of their possessions. They went down alive into Sheol with all that belonged to them. The earth closed over them and they vanished from the assembly. And at their cries, all of the people of Israel who were around them fled because they thought the earth will swallow us too. Fire also came out from the Lord and consumed 
the 250 men who were presenting the incense. Let's pray. Father, we need your spirit within us. The spirit who inspired your word to interpret your word that we would not be hearers only, but that we would be doers. Lord, help us today find peace in the midst of a rebellious community. We pray that you would open our minds to your word, open our hearts to your love, and open our hands to serve you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Wow. You thought you had a bad day. What in the world do we do with the word of the Lord in verse 1 of chapter 16? We see instantly, immediately, that we are confronted with a difficult situation, are we not? What we have here is, in the Hebrew text, grammatically displays the power and the emphasis of what's going on. Literally in the Hebrew it is, they stood up against Moses. So that phrase is fronted to Point your attention at the rebellion and that people who are standing up against Moses and ultimately against the Lord. You say, well, why does that even matter? And who is, for that matter, who is they? Who is they that came together in verse 3? Well, the scripture tells us who they is. Very clearly we see in verse 1, it's Korah, sons of Ischar, and son of Kohath the son of Levi, with Datan and Abiram, sons of Eliab and On, son of Pelet, sons of Reuben. You say, well, what does that even matter? What you don't understand. At this point in verse one, when the Hebrew community would have read this and experienced this, and they hear that now Korath, sons of Izhar, sons of Kohath, rebelled, the Israelites would have gasped. They would have gone, oh. so on the count of three, I'm going to read this scripture and let's gasp. The sons of Korah, sons of Izhar, sons of Kohath. Oh. You say, well, why in the world did we just gasp? Because what you need to understand is that Kohath was the grandfather of Korah. But Kohath actually had other grandsons. And he had some very famous grandsons, one of which you might have heard, a man named Moses, Moshe in the Hebrew. The second grandson he had was a man named Aaron. So what we have is not only Korah rebelling, but he's rebelling against his cousins. And the first point I want to make is this. Are you, you mad, cuz? Right? And you thought your family reunions were awkward. So this is not a simple rebellion. It's much deeper than that. It's, it's familial betrayal. It's betrayal from one cousin to another. It's betrayal from one person to the leadership in the community of faith. And it's ultimately betrayal of Korah to the Lord himself. And we have all of this going on. And, and what you need to understand even more is that we have, in addition to Korah, who else is rebelling against Moses and Aaron? You have the Reubenites. You say, well, who are the Reubenites? They were next door neighbors to Korah. So what you have is in the center of the camp, you have 
the Ark of the Tabernacle, right? The presence of the Lord was central to the camp. And around the camp, you have the people of God. So around the center of the camp here, you have the Levites in a concentric circle. Around the Levites, you have the rest of the community. And as you would go to the east, you had the position of power, Judah to the east. And as you would go clockwise, the position of power would decrease. So you have to the east of the camp, Judah. To the south of the camp, you have Reuben here. And next to Reuben, between Reuben and the Ark of the Tabernacle, you had the Korahites. And so they're neighbors. And not only were they neighbors, but who is Reuben, but the firstborn of a man named Jacob. So you have these positions of power and prominence saying, well, you know what? Why aren't we good enough? So this Southern rebellion, if you will, was not people who are at the bottom of society resisting against those in power. It were those who had power wanting more power. And with the Reubenites and with Korah and his sons, you had 250 other people. And who were they? They were chieftains. They were leaders. They were heads. Literally, the scripture says they were heads of their families. You say, well, what in the world does that have to do with me? You see, their rebellion is that they were taking a stand against God and his order for their life his will for their life. That's what they were pushing against. Have you ever been in a place in your life where you push against the will of the Lord? I know I have. And why would we do that? Why would the people of God here in this moment, why would they push against the Lord and his desire and his will? And so let's pause here and think deeply about why they rebelled because if we're not careful, we will do the same thing. The first reason they rebelled I know it never happened today, but it might. It's just simply, you know what? We deserve more. It's called entitlement. Look what they say here in verse three. Well, Moses and Aaron, you have gone too far. Everyone and the entire community. You know what they're saying? Why don't we get a trophy too? Where's our participation trophy? We still live in a world of entitlement, don't we? God, I deserve. God, why not me? Be careful that you do not push back against God's will for your life because of entitlement. You know, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm thankful God doesn't give me what I think I deserve. I'm thankful that God gives me what I don't deserve. That's why it's called grace. That's why it's called mercy. So if you're here today and you say, well, God, I'm angry at you because you don't give me what I deserve. You don't want that. You don't. You want to say, God, thank you that you have given me what I don't deserve. Be careful with entitlement. Be careful when you have some power in your life. These were not the dredges of society. They were the, the strength. They were Levites. They were leaders. They had some power, but usually when we have some power, what do we want? We want more. I remind our deacons every time we meet, and before someone wants to become a deacon, I tell them this, look, you're not receiving a promotion. When you become a deacon, you're receiving a demotion. It's not a position of power. 
as we serve the Lord. It's a decrease. It's saying, God, I will look at others better than myself as we model the humility and the servanthood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Be careful when you have some authority that you don't become power hungry in your life. Thirdly, what do we see from these people? I think we see the eternal truth that we are often likely to hurt others when we've been wounded ourselves. Moses, why not us? In verse four, you have gone too far. You know what hurting people do? They hurt people. I have people in our society and our community come up to me fairly regularly and, and I ask them, hey, where are you worshiping right now? Well, I'm not worshiping anywhere. I don't go to church, but I love the Lord. A different sermon. And oftentimes they'll say this, but pastor, you don't understand how the church has hurt me. And my go-to answer, and I don't say this flippantly, I say to them, you know what, Bob? You know what, Joe? I've been hurt by the church just as much as you have. That does not give me a reason to flee, but it gives me a reason to drink deeply from the fountain that will never run dry. Be careful. Be careful that you do not vent your anger to the Lord. And when we try to find peace in the midst of this war, where do we go? When you feel like if you're here and you're mad, maybe you're the cuz, maybe you're mad. Like, God, I just don't feel right now that I'm getting what I deserve. Lord, I followed you and this is what I get. Look at Moses' response in verse four. When Moses heard this, he fell down on his face. A wise man man in this church once said this, how long, O Lord? Not long. How long was Moses on his face? We don't know. But Moses demonstrates to us very clearly, if if your soul is at war right now, if you're in rebellion, the only answer is to bow down to the Prince of Peace. To hit your face and say, God, the only answer for my warring soul, for my anger, is Jesus. It is you. And Lord, if I don't know anything else, I'm just going to hit my face to the floor. And Lord, you'll tell me when to get up. Are you mad, bro? You're not alone. You're not alone. In verse 3, we find embedded in this narrative, not only people who are rebelling, but we have something what I would call the ancient worship war. Something that still continues to this day, but it's not, a, it's not a war fought with nuclear warheads or the mother of all bombs. It's a war for our soul. It's a war for your soul. Look what's going on here in verse three. These sons of Korah came together against Moses and Aaron and told them, you have gone too far. Why? Because everyone in this whole community is holy and the Lord He is among them. And I can almost hear or see Korah at this moment, like grabbing grabbing the hem of his coat. And you say, well, why would they do that? If you go up in chapter 15 and you look at the word of God, they have at this moment on on their clothes tassels in verse 39 of chapter 15. Tassels that served as a reminder to obey all the Lord's commands. This is what the Lord says in verse 39. Be careful to obey and not prostitute yourselves. By what? By following your own heart 
and your own eyes. How many times have we given that advice to someone? Well, you know what? Just follow your heart. You know where your heart leads? According to scripture and my heart to prostitution. Don't follow your heart. Follow the spirit. Follow the spirit. And why, why would they point to the tassels? I can almost hear them say this as they're proclaiming to the Lord. Well, Moses, I like to think of God as a welcoming God a loving God. And Moses, we can clearly come into the presence of God anytime we like. You see, they were following their hearts and not the Lord's. And how often, like Korah, do we miss a critical element of worship? You don't enter the presence of God according to your devices. We enter the presence of God by faith. You know, we, don't, we don't go to the Lord and say, God, here I am. All the other bombs stayed away because of the rain. And Lord, I brave the storm. I brave the tornadoes. So God, you're welcome. I know we wouldn't say that, but that's often how we come into worship, is it not? We come into worship as if we're doing the Lord a favor. We don't worship God that way. We worship God through faith. You show me the way that someone practices their faith and I will show you someone who believes and I will show you how they believe. It's often said that right orthodoxy, right belief leads to right orthopraxy, right behavior. You show me someone who's not following God, I'll show you someone who doesn't believe in God. And if, if you love me, and you see me not walking according to the word of the Lord, the most loving thing you could do for me is say, hey, pastor, I know you say you believe in God, but you're not walking according to the ways of God. And so if you believe in God, you should walk according to the ways of God. Kurrah, don't go into the presence of God like this. Go into the presence of God in the way that he has ordained, his sovereign will. This is a battle for our souls, a battle, a battle of are we going to live according to the word. And for the modern listener, this is what Korah chooses. He chooses that which is convenient over that which is faithful. Worship is not about convenience. It's about obedience. And how dare I say, God, I will worship you when it's good for me when it's timely for me, rather than saying, God, I will worship you through faith on your terms, by your will and your way. This is the ancient worship wars. You say, well, pastor, what hope do I have then? What hope do we have? If, if we cannot go to the Lord on our terms, what hope do you have and what hope do I have to ever worship the Lord? You see, we come to the Lord, the Father, the Yahweh, through his son, Jesus Christ. The one who died on the cross for our sins and made propitiation. The one who allows us to come into the presence of God. And because of the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus, this is how we should live. We don't come to the presence of God and say, God, here I am. We come into the presence of God and say, God, I can't believe I can worship you right now. God, I can't believe what your son Jesus did on my behalf. 
God, I can't believe that you let your son Jesus die for my sin. To live a sinless life that I could not live. To pay the punishment for my sins that one day I would pass through judgment into abundant life. Lord, I can't believe I get to worship you. That's the way that we should come into the presence of God every time. Oh, that we would not be like Korah. That we would be like Moses. And that we would hit our faces before the Lord. And say, God, you are worthy of it all. You are worthy of it all. Worship does not say, look at me. But there he is. There he is. We get to come into his presence. We also see this through the word of God as a reminder. Not only should we not rebel against the one true God, not only do we come to the Lord in his terms, not ours, but we see this truth that half-truths in our lives can be wholly damaging. Half-truths can be wholly damaging. We say, well, how do you, how do you know that? Well, look at verse 3. They come together against Moses and Aaron, and they say, you have gone too far. Everyone in the community of faith is holy, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves before the assembly? Moses, who do you think you are? And while we're at it, Aaron, who do you think you are that you could only and be the only one that would sacrifice and offer sacrifices on our behalf? Well, you see, where this is coming from is Exodus 19.6. What Korah is picking up on is, is in Exodus 19.6, the Lord says that you will be a special treasure to me, that you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Maybe Korah brings a scroll out and says, Moses, look at this. We are holy. So who do you think you are? He doesn't stop there, though. He says, and the Lord is among us all. It's a recap of Exodus 19.45 where the Lord tells the people, I will dwell among you and I will be your God. So what led Korah and his friends to such a murderous threat? Listen to this very carefully. A half-truth. You see, the adversary, Satan, has been doing this since the beginning of time. Think about Genesis, the fall. And, and as a church person, this, this makes me pause. It, this upsets my spirit. So Adam and Eve are in the garden and God has given them instruction, right? You can eat of any millions of trees, but this one tree, just one, don't touch. This is a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat in this one tree. And then we have what would the scripture say is a serpent. We know ultimately that's Satan, the devil. And the devil comes to Eve and ultimately Adam. He's there. He's just silent. Shame on him. And do you know what Satan says to Eve? Did God surely say that you can't eat of the tree? Now listen to what Satan does. Satan brings Eve back to the word of God. How foolish of him. Why would Satan want you to know the word of God? Think about what Satan does in the second wilderness. Not 40 years, but 40 days when Jesus is tempted. 
The second temptation of the wilderness, Satan comes to Jesus and says, uh, Jesus, you know that the word says that if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He will give angels orders concerning you. Why would Satan be content with you knowing the word of God? Because if you only know a half truth, you don't know the whole truth. Half truths can be wholly damaging. What happens to Adam and Eve? They fell into temptation and sin because they knew some of scripture. Here's the danger with a semi-Christianized, eased culture. Some of you know parts of the word of God and Satan has you exactly where he wants you. Because you know half of the story, you think you know the story. And you don't. We say, well, what are some things that, that, that might be half the story? Listen to some of the things that I've just seen in Scripture that we often bring up. This old bag of tricks from Satan, these half-truths. We think things like this, that God is only love. It says in 1 John 4, that God is love. That's a half-truth. The greatest truth is that he is more than love. He is holy, holy, holy. He is just, he is righteous, he is merciful, he is slow to anger, and yes, he is love. Be careful when you let Satan tell you what you should believe about God. Don't believe half-truths. Some of you believe this, sometimes we believe this, that if you are in Christ, that God is punishing you for your sins right now. Some of you believe I've sinned this week and God is punishing me. If you are in Christ, listen to the scripture. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There today is therefore now no condemnation. That's the power of the gospel, that God punished his son on our behalf. He's not punishing you when you sin. The wrath was already poured out on Jesus Christ. So maybe today you think, well, God, why are you punishing me because of this? He says, I'm not. I've already punished my son. Yes, you might be suffering the consequences of your bad decisions, but he's not punishing you. He has offered you abundant life. Another half-truth that we believe is I am not worthy to be used by God because of my past. Scripture says very clearly, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed and behold, the new has come. That's a lie. None of us are worthy to be used by God, but yet he makes us new. Don't believe the half-lie. Sometimes we believe this, well, I'm a sinner and God can never save me. Romans 5.8 clearly says that while we were still sinners, God proved his love. God proved it. While we were sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. Look, God did not die for you because he said, you know what, Terry, one day is gonna make a really good church person. Austin, man, He's already a teetotaler, rule follower, Josh, checkbox. He had perfect attendance this year. I think I'll save him. I think I'll let my son pour out his blood on that. No, the truth is that, that God looked at us in our rebellion and said, I will make a way. 
Don't believe half-truths. You know what half-truths are? Whole lies. Don't live your life based on half-truths that will be wholly damaging to your soul. Lean on the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. We see this in Scripture too. Not only should we flee rebellion, not only should we gird up our loins and say, God, put us in our right place. But we see this in verse 26. In verse 24 also, truly the command to flee from sin. If you are in Christ, this is what God wants you to do today. Look at verse 24. Verse 26 reiterates this. Tell the community, get away from the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Get away from them. A visible reminder and an urgent plea. Run from sin. Don't stay there. You're not strong enough to resist temptation. What's going on here probably is what we now know in the ancient world and even today, that their tents were pitched on what we call a kevir or kevar. It's a, even today in the Arabah, in the ancient world, they have these modern salt flats or bogs. And even today that you can go there and, and they are hundreds of feet deep. But they have a thin crust on them. So if you were to walk over these soggy bogs, you would fall straight through. Most likely what Korah and the Reubenites didn't know is they had pitched their tents upon this chasm. And yes, it was a miracle that it opened up, but not only did it open up and swallow them whole, what happened? It did so at the word of Moses and it closed up over them. So three miracles in one. I pray that the ground that we stand on right now is stronger. In effect, the ground swallowed those who would not swallow their pride. That's what going, get away from this sin. Let Korah be a lasting reminder in your life to flee from iniquity because sin has no place in the body of Christ. You say, well, I'm, just, I'm a sinner. I, there's nothing I can do. That's who I am. No, it's not. If you are in Christ, you are no longer identified as a sinner, but a saint. And so we shouldn't go around saying, well, I'm just a sinner. There's nothing I can do. No, Christ has given us power over death, over hell, and over sin. That's the hope that we have. And the reminder is flee. 1 Corinthians 10 says this, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. But God is faithful. And with every temptation, which he will not be tempted beyond what you are able, but will provide a way of escape so that you will be able to bear it. Are you struggling with temptation today? Maybe it's pornography and lust. Maybe it's ill-gotten gain. Maybe you, you have lied and cheated your way to the top. Maybe you are fighting for power or you are oppressing someone that you have no desire exhorting power over them that God has not given you. If you're struggling with that right now, just know that God is not tempting you beyond what you can bear if you were in Christ Jesus. And so the reminder, very simply, just let these words ring in your ear. Get Away, go, run, flee. Don't stay there. If the phone is causing you to sin, destroy it. 
People for thousands of years existed without cell phones. I know it's unbelievable. And they lived a perfectly healthy existence. People for thousands of years live without TVs. If the TV's causing you to sin, destroy it. It's better not to have Netflix and to lose your soul. If preference is driving you to sin, lose the preference, sit on the ground. It's not worth your soul. Flee from sin. And for us, not only should Korah be a visible reminder to flee sin, but for those who are in Christ Jesus, remember the cross. Remember the crown of thorns they put upon your Savior's head. Remember the blood that spilled. Listen and remember the words of Jesus Christ. You said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? May that haunt us to the way that we say, Lord, how could I ever sin again against you? Who gives me the power through the Holy Spirit over sin. Church, saint, dear brother and sister in Christ, get away from sin. It has no place in your life. Lastly, we see this. I ask of the word, God, how could anyone, how could anyone who has experienced, Korah was there when, when they put the lamb's blood over the door and the death angel passed by. And that they celebrate the Passover remembering the freedom that God has given them. How could anyone who experienced the 10 plagues in Egypt in seeing that the Egyptians had the frogs, but the people of Israel did not. The Egyptians had the boils and the people of Israel did not. Lord, how could anyone who walked through the Red Sea on dry ground, Lord, how can anyone, when they saw Moses speak to the rock and water comes forth, how could anyone like that rebel against God? Well, how could anyone who has, who has seen your grace, how could they rebel against you? Anyone else asking that question? I just feel like, God, if I would have seen that, man, I'm better than Korah. Here is the reminder that we get from the word of God. I was praying through this and saying, God, how could anyone do this? The Holy Spirit's response to me was this. Josh, you are Korah. Lord, how, how could we who have tasted and seen that you are good, Lord, how could we rebel? Jonathan Edwards, in one of his sermons, has a beautiful thought, a, hor a horrific thought too, that encapsulates this very well. He says this, that unconverted men walk over the pit of hell on a rotten covering. There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. And the danger for us today is that we feel like because we don't see the ground opening up and swallowing Ricky, swallowing Josh, swallowing Pat or whoever it might be because we don't see these God, doing that right now, we just feel like, you know what? Lord doesn't come down as hard on sin anymore. 
we will all one day be held account to our sin. One day we will meet God face to face and we will be held in contempt to a rebellious God. Listen to the reminder of Korah. The only thing that keeps you from hell in this instant, if you have not put your hope and trust in Jesus Christ, is a covering, a rotten covering that you are walking over. And it is only God's good pleasure that has kept you from falling through. Oh, that would stir us to say, God, I don't know what I have to do, but Lord, let me find mercy. So what? How do we live this out? Today, if you have not turned from your sins and put your hope and trust in Jesus Christ, I want you to know that your destination of your, cho- of your choosing, you are choosing to go to hell away from a God who loves you. God has created you to know him and experience his love. But because of your sin, you cannot know him and you do not experience his love. But if you, as scripture says, if you believe today and confess him as Lord, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, whoever will be saved. I'm thankful for the reminder today that, God, how could anyone be like Korah and rebel against a God who loves them? God's reminder is, Josh, you are Korah. But Josh, you are also a whosoever. If you believe in me, you will not perish, but have everlasting life. Maybe that's you today. Who here right now for the first time says, I want to put my, I want to put my hope and trust in Jesus. I don't want the same fate that took these men. I want eternity with God, with his presence, with experience and his love, and not without him. I'm going to lead us in a prayer right now. And if, if you are there, if you say, today I want to find eternal life. I'm gonna invite you just to put your hope in Jesus. And you can pray a prayer like this. There's no prayer that saves you. Only Jesus, his atoning work saves you. But we communicate with God through prayer. So if you would bow your head and close your eyes, I wanna lead us in this prayer.